most dangerous time of all for any type of heroin addict to overdose is when they stop using um, because they go back to the same amount that they were using and that is when they are the highest risk to overdose. And a lot of times when folks come in and they say they fail, you know, SSRI, I can't take any SSRIs, no SSRIs work. A lot of times it's about expectation. The more trauma that someone incurs, the more likely they are to struggle with things like addiction, to struggle with incarceration. And so a lot of this really focuses on what can we do to prevent these types of situations. You know, if you look at the mortality, um, people are, you know, that are using opiates, um, it's, it's six times the general population but then if they get MAT, it goes down to two times the general population. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare you and me. Last episode, we heard from clinical psychologist Craig Lotus about how to conceptualize addiction. You know, if, if you've ever had a friend or family member who struggled with addiction, uh, it can be very hard to be accepting and compassionate and set boundaries. In some ways, it can feel easier to say, oh, this is a choice. I watched the show Intervention. I know what I need to do. I need to make my relationship contingent upon their sobriety. It gives us a sense of power. Um, I think it also perpetuates guilt and shame and some really unhelpful narratives surrounding addiction. On today's episode, episode two, we're going to be hearing from some of Idaho's frontline opioid addiction treatment specialists, honing in on the state of opioid and substance use in the state of Idaho. We're going to look at some of the current trends and figures and talk about what measures have been put in place to address them. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of the medications that are available for treating opioid use disorder. All of that is coming up in the next 45 minutes, so stick around. Let's get to today's lecture. The recording we're going to be hearing was recorded live during an echo session on February 28th, 2019. This was a part of our series on opioid addiction and treatment. And here to introduce today's lecture and presenter, I'm going to turn it over to Echo Idaho Program Director, Lachelle Smith. Today, our lecture is on the state of use in Idaho and will be led by LCSW Amy Jepson, who's also the Executive Director of Recovery for Life. And because um, we've got some new faces and I wanna make sure we get our panel identified, plus the guests we have in the room with us today, we'll do introductions here. My name's Lachelle Smith, I manage the ECHO program. I'm Kathy Oliphant, I'm a pharmacist at ISU College of Pharmacy. Amy Jepson, LCSW, uh, Executive Director at Recovery for Life. Todd Potter, family medicine doc and uh, addiction medicine doc. Brenda Freedom, a nurse practitioner, raise the bottom. 
uh, Corey Weathers, psychiatrist at um, Cottonwood uh, Lost River Wellness. All right. Welcome all. So another quick reminder that we want your questions and thoughts throughout. So don't be shy. And now I'm going to pass it to Amy. Um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about where is the state of Idaho as far as the opioid epidemic and what is the state of Idaho doing about that and what are some resources that might be accessible to you that maybe you haven't heard of or, or don't know about at this time. Um, so I titled the state of the state with the opioid epidemic. And our objectives really are to address the addiction trans populations most effective, discuss some current treatment options, um, and how the state is planning to address the issue. So first I thought we would start with some current trends. So SAMHSA, which is the federal government's uh, agency that oversees the substance abuse across the United States, does a survey each year. So according to that survey, what we know is that we still have a big problem with uh, millions continue to misuse prescription pain relievers. Um, and this, they kind of have broken it down into sort of the populations or the different types of drugs that people are using. Um, another thing that's really interesting that came out of this study that I want to point out uh, is that, that the population that's the most affected is 18 to 25. I think sometimes we tend to think um, that the population that's most affected are maybe chronic pain folks, which they are definitely affected. Um, but right now, the growing trend and the fastest group or population um, age group that is starting to get into drug use is 18 to 25. So, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think it's also important to point out um, from their study sort of what type of prescription drugs are being misused. We've got hydrocodone, we've got oxycodone, tramadol. Um, you see the, the huge increase in buprenorphine. Um, and so in 2017, it was the number one uh, prescription drug that was misused. And so we kind of have to ask ourselves some questions about that. Like, why? Why would buprenorphine be the most misused uh, prescription drug? I think there's a couple of answers or hypotheses that I have about that. Um, the first is that when you're treating addiction, um, there is something inherently different about opiate addiction than other types of addiction, such as methamphetamine, alcoholism. Um, my experience in working with opiate addiction is there's an intrinsic piece inside people that are addicted to opiates. Not that it's not true with other types of addictions, but there's this intrinsic piece that actually wants to get better. And it's more common than not when people come into treatment, they say, I've been trying to stop, so I purchased Suboxone on the street. Um, I've been trying to curb my use, so I purchased some Suboxone from a friend to try and get myself on it to get in here today. Um, and so that's sort of an interesting differentiation between opiate addiction and other types of addiction. Not that other types don't want to get well, but it usually they don't usually come in with that intrinsic wanting to get better. The other thing we know is that heroin use has climbed and then it stabilized. It actually went down a little bit in 2017, but an interesting thing to note is that the number of deaths from heroin actually increased. Um, and there's a really interesting reason for that. One is the most dangerous time of all for any type of heroin addict to overdose is when they stop using. 
um, because they go back to the same amount that they were using, and that is when they are the highest risk to overdose. That is their very highest risk time. So while heroin use is going down, um, the death number is rising up, and I think it, it's also attributed to more people are getting into treatment, but that's also the most dangerous, dangerous time for them. Um, and that's why I think as we trend forward, we really have to look at um, making um, naloxone and those type Narcan much more available to people because they're at the greatest risk. Um, and then the other thing, and this is probably not too surprising for you, so the, the drug that was uh, increased its usage the most in 2017 was marijuana. Um, so 40.9 billion people were using marijuana. I think we can attribute that to some of the states that have legalized. But right underneath it, the second fastest growing was um, the psychotherapeutic drugs. And those are things like opiates, tranquilizers, and sedatives. Um, and heroin is relatively small um, as compared to the rest of it. So that's also something that's interesting to note. Um, so some of the summaries that I'll just kind of pop through a couple of these that SAMHSA had. Um, one is that the, the generation that is increasing with the greatest use is 18 to 25 year olds um, and 18 to 25 year old women. The other thing that I think is really significant is that the other fastest group of growing users are pregnant women. Um, and they are growing in the most, as just as fast as the 18 to 25 year old group of people, which I think is really interesting. That same group of 18 to 25 year olds not only is struggling with heroin and opiate problems, um, but they, we saw a decrease in the methamphetamine use and methamphetamine is coming back to life in that age group, um, as well as LSD, um, which we've seen kind of a decrease in over the years. Um, it's starting to make a resurgence. The other thing that is that more people are actually able to access treatment now, um, which I think is a really good thing. Just a reminder here that these national trends Amy is reporting originate from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration survey, and that this lecture was given in 2019. Next, Amy will give us the rundown on opiate use here in the GEM state. Um, so what are Idaho trends? So... So if you think about the opiate epidemic, it's, um, some of the bigger states, the bigger cities really got hit pretty hard in the beginning, and they're sort of starting to see the decrease. And what I would say in Idaho is we're actually on the opposite side of that where we're seeing an increase. So as it kind of filtrates across the United States, um, we're seeing more and more and more and more people coming in for opiate. So just to give you an example, a year ago, if I saw 10 clients coming into recovery for life, maybe one of those clients maybe possibly two, but typically about one out of 10 would say that they had an, an issue or had used opiates in the past. Now it's about eight out of 10 clients coming through the door. We'll talk about opiate problems or opiate use. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about what's trending is that not only are they using opiates or heroin, but they're using methamphetamine. And in my career, I never thought that we would talk about people using those two drugs together. Because as you know, opiates are, you know, they calm you down, they're a relaxant, they make you feel good. And methamphetamine is like a chipmunk on like too much coffee. You know, it's got you up, it's got you going, you're all amped. Um, and so it's a really interesting trend right now, but it's very rare that we see someone that's using opiates that's not at this time also combining that with methamphetamine use. And in talking with them, what I said was, why would you do that? Why would you take something that makes you totally relaxed, totally calm, and then use something that makes you like chippy chipmunk where you're up all night? And they're like, well, it helps me because then I can, I can use my opiates, but I can still get up and manage my life. I can clean my house. I can get more done. 
Um, so they're mixing those two things. The other thing that we've seen an insurgence of are bath salts. Um, bath salts we talked a little bit about in here. They really made their debut about four years ago and kind of went away. Um, and so what we've seen a lot of is people are taking a new formulation for bath salts. Um, and these, when I say bath salts, I'm not talking about you're taking a bath and you're putting bath salts in and you're relaxing. I'm talking about a chemical formula that um, it basically has an effect of kind of like an LSD, an acid. Um, it, it really makes you kind of out there. And they're cutting the bath salts into the methamphetamine or the heroin. And so we get a lot of clients that are coming in saying, I use meth, but it something was weird about it. It was like nothing that I've ever had. Um, they have a, uh, some temporary psychosis. They might be hallucinating. Um, so we are seeing more bath salts coming back into the valley, and but it's not on its own. It's typically cut into the opiates or heroin or the meth that they're using. Um, then there's also Kratom. So Kratom is uh, actually legal, and you can buy it at any smoke shop. So what's happening, too, is people that are struggling with opiate use or opiate use disorder, or maybe they're trying to get off heroin, and they can't afford or maybe they don't want to go into uh, medicated assisted therapy they go down to the smoke shop and they buy kratom and kratom is sort of a natural plant-like thing um, that mimics the effects of like opiates um, or heroin and so sort of the word on the street is if well if you start doing kratom it's like taking suboxone and you can kind of wean yourself off of your opiates or your heroin um, and it's a lot safer for you but in fact, it's not, that's not actually true because we don't know enough about what Kratom is, what it does. Um, and pretty commonly, a lot of our clients that go out and start on Kratom, they feel more addicted to the Kratom um, than they actually did to the opiates. And they talk about that. And if you know anything about opiate withdrawals, it's one of the worst things you can ever experience. Um, but they talk about coming off of Kratom as being twice as hard of, as coming off of the opiates. And unfortunately, it's, you know, it's something they can pick up at any smoke shop. And so you can smoke it. I think there's, there's a pill form as well. Um, there's different ways you can use that. And then ease of access. Um, one of the things that, you know, when we think about uh, opiates or heroin, we kind of think about your neighborhood drug dealer. Um, but to be honest with you, a lot of the drugs are coming in through drug dealers, but even more so, they're coming through the mail. <laughs> so you can get online, you can go on the dark web, you can use some Bitcoin, you can purchase your heroin, and you have it mailed straight to your front door. You purchase fentanyl, it gets mailed straight to your front door. So in reality, the UPS is sort of <laughs> becoming our drug mule, um, if you will. Um, so uh, you, you can get it mailed to you. And so... Uh, while we still have dealers and we still have people doing things like that, um, a lot of, and again, look at the generation that we're talking about, the 18 to 25 year, year old generation. So this is a generation that's grown up in a digital era. This is a generation that's very familiar with apps. And, you know, this is a generation that when you're having a problem with your phone, you find one of those guys and they know exactly what to do. Um, and so they're, it's really much easier for them to access their drugs through just ordering it online. We're seeing more and more of that. Um, in particular, um, Pocatello has had a large problem with fentanyl um, in the past, and it was that's where it was kind of coming from. Um, we also have seen an increase in overdoses. Two things have happened here that would account for this. One is that um, uh, Dottie, who's the current person here. Amy is referring here to Dottie Owens, the Ada County coroner really implemented across the state a way for us to start counting opiate deaths instead of just ruling them out as sort of an unknown 
Uh, and so we've, we've had a lot more measures in our state to be able to tell whether it's an opiate overdose versus just an unknown death. Um, and so in 2017, there were 100 recorded opiate overdose deaths. Um, and then again, that highest risk is when they get clean, when they stop using, that's when they're at the highest risk for overdose. And that was Ada County. That was just in Ada County. Um, so uh, what we've seen in Idaho is um, we definitely have, obviously, a lot of people doing opiates. Um, we have heroin. Um, and then we've seen a significant increase in the number of fentanyl, fentanyl coming into the state. And again, um, a lot of a lot of the fentanyl is being brought in by the mail, quite frankly. Um, the other thing that we haven't seen a whole lot of yet, but our neighboring state of Utah has had some experience with this, is carfentanyl. Um, so if you look, morphine is, you know, one times powerful. Two, heroin is two times powerful more than morphine. Fentanyl is 100 times, and then carfentanyl is 10,000 times more uh, potent uh, than morphine. And we also know, too, that um, if you, in the 70s, when heroin made its debut, it was really a yellow substance. It was more of a byproduct, um, and it had much lower grade to it. But in 2017, the average uh, heroin contained 45% pure, and that also changes it into a white substancy powder. So, so you look at heroin, which is more pure than it's ever been before, and then you look at fentanyl that's still 100 times more powerful than that heroin. And then you look at carfentanil. So carfentanil on the street is called pink, um, uh, pink, ch uh, China rush, different things like that. Um, and we haven't seen as much of it in Idaho, um, but literally people that are overdosing or had, there were two kids up in Park City that ordered pink off of the mail. They tried it and both of them died instantly. Carfentanil was developed to be an elephant tranquilizer. Um, and also a giraffe tranquilizer. It was built for large animal, animals to tranquilize them. And as we know, fentanyl was developed as sort of an anesthesia or an extreme uh, painkiller. So, so you look at those kind of things and you can see why, why some of our stuff is rising. So what is the state of Idaho doing about this? Um, and what options do you have um, for funding for treatment? Um, and, and how can you access those options? I'll just give you a quick overview. So the legislation, you've probably been, I don't know if you've been following, I've been following the mandatory minimums. Um, and so there's some work to change the mandatory minimums. A lot of our um, drug laws currently really came to be on the, in, during the time of the war on drugs. And we've learned a lot since that period of time. Um, and so our laws sort of reflect the war on drugs, but we've learned that that's not necessarily always the best way to handle the problem. And so they're actually doing some current work on mandatory minimums and changing those. Um, Idaho is also working on making Narcan more available. Um, uh, for the first time two years ago, Idaho actually entertained on the state side and the state payer source um, paying for medication assisted therapy. Um, and that's kind of a new, although it's been done in other states for a long time, um, and there's some pilots going on right now, including one that's looking at a diversion for people that get picked up for, for having heroin or opiates um, and allowing them go, to go to treatment rather than being charged with that. But given our time is almost up, I'm just going to open it up for questions for what we have talked about today. I'd love to hear you wax philosophic a little bit about seeing such a high buprenorphine rate being diverted. This is an echo participant speaking, Dr. Stephen Coates. 
I'm, I'm not sure what to say. I, in a way, I'm glad that people are trying to take the recovery into their own hands. I, I do see it as possibly different in terms of how severe of a diversion a buprenorphine prescription would be compared to, say, a morphine or oxycodone. Um, so, yeah, so some hypothesis that I have, there's a couple. One, again, is what I talked about, which I think my experience with people that are using opiates or addicted to those have this inherits thing that they want to get help they just are not sure how to do it and so so you've got people that are going to um, you have different levels of medication assisted therapy clinics so you've got the, the level where they check in every day you've got the level where they leave with a prescription for three days um, they come back in three days get another prescription then get a 15 day prescription and so and then you also have um, while we desperately need it more people getting certified to dispense Suboxone. And we really need that, but we also have to be careful in how we roll that out that we don't create the same problem that we had with the opiate epidemic. Um, and so I think all three of those things are more contributing to that larger number of buprenorphine kind of roaming around on the streets. So maybe I got my three-day prescription, maybe I go home from the doctors and I decide that mm, I really didn't want to start this, I'm just going to do one last time. Um, so I sell it to my buddy. Um, but yeah, I was kind of surprised by that as well. But that is, that's the biggest uh, drug that's kind of floating around that right now. I think, um, I think also a lot of people don't want to go through opiate withdrawal. This is Dr. Todd Palmer speaking. Dr. Palmer is the Addiction Fellowship Director at the Family Medicine Residency of Idaho in Boise. Along with Amy Jepson, Dr. Palmer is one of our longstanding experts on the Opioid Series Specialist Panel and also partners with Echo Idaho to give a free ex-waiver training twice annually. So um, uh, they buy um, buprenorphine on the street. I, I heard it's um, I, I heard like $15 to $40 for an 8-milligram pill. Something like that, it you know, could be off a little bit. Um, but when you look at oxycodone, which is a dollar or more per milligram, you know, maybe it's a cheaper alternative and, you know, they don't have to go through withdrawal and they're more clear headed. So I, you know, that I've heard that from some patients actually. They just get hold of it because they don't want to go through the rigors of uh, opiate withdrawal. And most of that buprenorphine is not suboxone. This is an ECHO participant speaking, Dr. Monty Moore, a pain specialist and contributing lecturer to ECHO Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series. Buprenorphine is not suboxone. It doesn't have the, the uh, naloxone with it. Is that, is that definitely true? I mean, I, I know buprenorphine is, is, is diverted more you know, when it's not suboxone, but I imagine there's still a lot of suboxone that's been diverted as well. Yes, there is. We see clients that are buying suboxone, and then we see clients that are just buying buprenorphine. Um, in the past, it's been more just buprenorphine, um, but in the last six months, it's more suboxone. So I bought some suboxone from a friend. I got the suboxone, suboxone. So we're seeing an increase in people actually purchasing Suboxone. And again, I think, I think as a state, we're doing a much better job of doing Medicaid-assisted therapy, but it also puts a lot more Suboxone out there. Yeah. So. This may be a good time to pause to say a few words about some of the medications you're hearing about. Dr. Coates and Dr. Palmer were just talking about buprenorphine. Dr. Moore just mentioned Suboxone and Naloxone. So what are all of these medications? I want to take a second here and just define a few of these for our listeners who may not be familiar with them. The Food and Drug Administration has identified three approved medications for opioid use disorder treatment. 
methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. I also want to talk about suboxone and naloxone just because they're probably going to keep coming up in these conversations. To help me define these, I'm going to refer to some definitions provided by some of our opioid addiction and treatment expert panelists. Here to define methadone is Brenda Hoyt, nurse practitioner at Raise the Bottom. So what is methadone? Methadone is one of three FDA-approved medications used in the treatment of opiate use disorder. So methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone. Methadone can be used to treat moderate to severe pain, um, but it's been used for treating opiate use disorder for more than 50 years. Um, So methadone is um, an opioid agonist. It's administered orally. It comes in tablet liquid and wafers. So it is a Schedule II medication and can only be dispensed through federally certified opioid treatment programs and acute inpatient hospital settings for opiate use disorder. Um, Typically dosed once daily because it has a really long half-life and it stays in the body for up to 56 hours. So reduces the frequency and dosing throughout the day. Uh, And it's effective in reducing or suppressing opioid withdrawals and cravings. And at effective doses, um, steady state doses, blunts or blocks euphoric effects of self-administered illicit opiate use through occupancy of those receptors and cross-tolerance. So some of the benefits, clinical studies and research have demonstrated that it's safe and effective for long-term treatment and does have some risks associated, just like any other medication, but is found to be generally safe. And along with being prescribed with programs and strict program conditions and guidelines, um, it reduces or cessates the use of illicit drugs, um, particularly opiates, reduction in overdose deaths, reduction in criminal behaviors, reduction in the spread of communicable diseases like HIV or AIDS, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. Um, It's safe to be used during pregnancy, and it's cost-effective. So it's on average $13 a day for dosing. Some of the adverse reactions or side effects, respiratory depression, constipation, excessive sweating, QT um, interval prolongation, weight gain, somnolence or sedation, decreased libido or sexual function, and then neonatal abstinence syndrome for women that have have been on methadone during pregnancy. For a definition of the second of these three FDA-approved medications, buprenorphine, here's Todd Palmer, Addiction Fellowship Director at the Family Medicine Residency in Idaho. So, so what are some characteristics of, of buprenorphine? Well, it, it, it's a partial opioid agonist, so it's a partial mu agonist. So it doesn't have the full effect on the mu receptor, but it has a very high affinity, meaning that, that it binds very tightly. It, it binds more tightly than other new agonists, um, and it disassociates slowly. It displaces other new agonists. You, you give it, it displaces them, and it stays on the receptor for a while, so it, it blocks it from other new agonists from getting to the receptor. The buprenorphine plateaus out at a lower level um, than, than the full agonists, like heroin, methadone, morphine. Um, it's somewhat safer. Uh, it plateaus out. There's less respiratory suppression. Um, there's less sedation, um, so it's generally a safer med. And for our third medication, naltrexone, here's Dr. Monty Moore, pain specialist. Naltrexone, um, it's an opioid receptor antagonist. Its classic use is to help maintain patients with opioid or alcohol use disorder 
to help them to stay abstinent because it blocks the opioid receptor that makes it so that the opioids don't have their usual effect. As opposed to naloxone or Narcan, naltrexone is absorbed through the GI tract. Um, it comes in a 50 milligram dose and has to be prepared at a compounding pharmacy. Half-life is around six hours, and I will begin at a dosage of a half to one and a half milligrams a day, and then over a three to six-month period, titrate the dose up. Uh, one of the things I've seen out in the community is people have started to use this on their patients who are currently taking opiates, and uh, that's, that's not something you want to do. They need to be off their opiates. Um, so if they're already on an opiate, it will put them into withdrawal. And if, uh, if they're taking an opiate, basically we're, try we're giving the opiate receptor a rest when we do this so, that it can re so things can repair. And so we don't want to be stimulating that opiate receptor. How this works, it's like uh, if you have a hardware store and you close the doors so that you can remodel it. It somehow at a cellular molecular level remodels the afferent pain pathways in the, in the central nervous system. And so I'm not a neurophysiologist, but I, you know, as a clinician, I like this drug. It's been really great. Now there's two other drugs that are in the mix here and will keep coming up in our conversations. Naloxone is similar to naltrexone in as much as it is an opioid receptor antagonist, but it's a different medication. For a definition of naloxone, here's ISU College of Pharmacy Chair Kathy Oliphant. So what is naloxone? So naloxone is an antidote to reverse the opioid-induced respiratory depression as well as CNS depression, um, secondary to opioids. So it is a pure opioid antagonist that binds with very high affinity to the opioid receptors. And so the mu receptors are probably the primary. We also have kappa and delta receptors. It's got the greatest affinity for the mu receptors. And once naloxone binds onto those receptors, it displaces the opioids off. So you have naloxone binding, it will push the opioid um, agonist off that. And an unbound doesn't have um, its physiologic effects. So what happens when the naloxone displaces the opioids, we get reversal of the clinical and toxic effects of the opioids, which is what we want, and that can hopefully save a life. Um, when we knock the opioids off the receptors, though, individuals who are regular users of opioids or heroin, because we'll see that heroin fits into this as well, they can get the sudden withdrawal symptoms. And so not life-threatening unless there are other comorbid conditions that would put them into that life-threatening category, which would not be that common. But um, they, they may experience some agitation, um, irritability, tachycardia, some GI side effects. I mean, those are just to name a few of what could happen once you knock those opioids off their receptors. And finally, for a definition of Suboxone, here's Dr. Palmer once again. So what is this whole thing about buprenorphine and Suboxone? Buprenorphine is, is Subutex. That's the, the brand name. And then you got, and that's just buprenorphine. And then you've got Suboxone, which is buprenorphine and Naloxone. So why do we have buprenorphine and naloxone? Well, it turns out that naloxone 
is not very, very bioavailable when you, it's taken sublingually. But when it's taken parenterally, it's about 100 times more bioavailable. So what the, the reason this preparation is out there is that it, it, it discourages people from injecting buprenorphine. Because if, they, if, they, if you give them suboxone, they inject it, that naloxone is so potent that it doesn't allow the buprenorphine to do very much. So that's what, and we, when we, we use suboxone on almost all of our patients, except for pregnant patients. There's a lot more to say about each of these medications as far as how to prescribe them, what the advantages of each are, how they're administered, etc. And I'm hoping we'll be able to get into some of the details of that in subsequent episodes. But for now, back to the conversation. I want to transition now if I can. Dr. Reagan, you also submitted some sort of general global potpourri, I think you call them, questions. Your first one, I think, lends right into this conversation. You say, you ask substance abuse counseling required in addition to or instead of regular counseling with folks who are getting that treatment does that in a pro is that capture your question and if so who has thoughts about that yes that that exactly uh captures the question i, I know for the box uh, you know this this is mainly for Amy, but this one quick comment is um you know for the waiver right um you have to say that you have access to counseling the waiver Dr. Palmer is referring to here is the MAT waiver, which stands for Medication Assisted Treatment Waiver. It's also known as an X waiver. This is a documentation requirement for anyone who is going to prescribe medications for opioid use disorder. But it doesn't have to be a substance abuse counselor. It can be a general counselor. That being said, substance abuse counselors do a, do a better job than the MAT. Um, so I'm, I'm teaching a substance abuse class up at BSU to the master's level students. And um, one of the things I talked to them about is, so if you had a brain tumor, would you go see like an orthopedic surgeon? And I think substance abuse counseling falls into that same category. It really is a specialty. So you have to have, you have to master the basic counseling skills and then you add the specialty of substance abuse. My belief is that when you have someone on mat, um, depending on their functioning level, if they've really struggled with an addiction, part of that struggle is psychological. Not only is it a physical addiction, but there's a lot of psychological pieces that go along with that. And so if I don't, I get on a medication where I feel better and I don't need to go use anymore, but if I don't learn new ways to deal with my stress, learn ways, a lot of, I mean, the last uh, SAMHSA study showed that 99% of incarcerated women and uh, 76% of incarcerated men had uh, massive trauma. Um, we know that the average is 76% of people that use substance abuse have trauma. So if I don't resolve those things, at some point I'm likely to go back. I may stay on the medication or I may stop at some point because I encounter some kind of trigger. And so putting them in that substance abuse counseling, um, when they get on that uh, medically stable dose of their MAT treatment, allows, us, allows them to begin to process through that. And it really predicts long-term recovery for them. Like I've learned coping skills. I learned how to deal with this. And it's different than just regular um, mental health counseling. It really is very different um, because I need to understand the substance. I need to understand the impact of the substance on the person. I need to understand how the two work together um, so that I'm not like, oh, well, you've got depression. So, you know, go out and run a couple miles, write a journal, talk to some friends. Um, if someone's really struggled with substance abuse, those types of things aren't necessarily, they're good for them, but they're 
not likely to do them and they, they may not work for them. So you've really got to have those two expertise. So I'm a proponent of not everyone needs substance abuse counseling that's doing that. But if you've struggled with an addiction, you need to, to deal, clean up that side too, so that you can stay in recovery. Brenda, what do you guys do at the methadone clinic? So all of our patients are required to have a minimum of one hour of counseling every month. Um, I would say the majority of our counselors are CADCs, but which is uh, wait, I know that I can never ever remember certified alcohol drug counselor. Yes, there you go. And then we do have some that are um, social workers that they're in a couple master's levels. So the majority is. But we are focusing substance use counseling, not just garden variety. And then we do have people that are coming, focusing on the substance use, and then also working on other coping skills for working through the anxiety, working through trauma, because trauma is a significant component. So working on those things in in this at the same time that they're working on all of the substance use stuff. And it's not like we dismiss the mental health piece of it. Right. We just have to, as a substance abuse counselor, you have to recognize that they're intermingled. It's not one or the other. They're intermingled, and you've got to deal with both of them. Could I just add something, Michelle? Please, Michael. Remind us who you are, though. So this is uh, Magni Humso. I'm an internist. I do a lot of substance abuse treatment at Terry Riley, and I'm also at the Boise VA. Um, So I think in the medical literature, like there's not a ton of hard data saying that when someone's on medication for addiction treatment, that counseling on top has a big impact. That said, it's something that's very hard to study. And in general, we think that people absolutely will benefit. Um, and so that's why that's like the ASAM recommendation to offer people counseling. Uh, and that's what I do generally. We at Terry Riley are lucky enough to have drug and alcohol counselors who are also clinical social workers who can um, work with patients and we work closely with Recovery for Life, especially for our criminal justice-involved populations. I think the only sort of caution I would say is that sometimes we're not completely patient-centered about it. And if, if we create a program where we want the patient to jump through a lot of different hoops, sometimes we can end up being a barrier to recovery. So I think just reminding everybody to make sure that it's patient-centered at different levels in the recovery, they're going to be able to do more or less. Some patient is going to need a ton of structure and will benefit from intensive outpatient. And then there's someone else who actually is quite functional with their substance use disorder, is holding a full-time job. For that person, it could actually be um, problematic to add that many hours in the day. So really just thinking about who your patient is and um, what works for them at that time. Um, I think the situations where I'm mandating treatment is, you know, obviously someone who's struggling every single time they come in, their urine has all kinds of different things in them. Uh, they're missing appointment right and left. That's someone who absolutely needs the structure of a formal program. While again, someone else who has small relapses in the setting of stress needs that the support that Amy talked about really explore why that is sort of their coping mechanism for maybe they need less intensive services and we can sort of fit it out in around their their work schedule. This, this, this is something I've struggled a little bit with. I, I mean, there are some oxalone prescribers out there that they just won't prescribe unless someone's getting counseling. Um, and, and, and it's fairly mandated that anybody going to an OB treatment center get um, counseling at least once a month. Now, that being said, you know, with, with what Maggie was just talking about in, in the literature um, and, and the fact that, you know, harm reduction is, is, is 
really quite effective. Um, I don't, I, um, in some of my patients, I don't, I don't mandate that. And actually quite a few, I mean, if, if patients come in and they, they're absolutely refusing counseling, but they're open to MAT and I see the value of MAT and they're, and they're not, um, you know, they're, they're, they're fairly compliant. Um, then I'll, I'll, I'll allow that. Um, and I think, um, the benefits outweigh the risk. No, and I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. So I should have used the harm reduction language because that's that's the right thing. And I mean, I think it's that fits with everything we do in medicine. Like some patients are going to, like they're never going to take insulin and you will work with them on oral medications for the diabetes. And you might not quite get to goal, but at least they're not um, getting admitted with sort of severe, you know, dehydration from severe hyperglycemia, uh, maybe reducing some of their complications. So I think it's, it's, it's the same thing we do everywhere where we have to come up with a patient-centered approach and some patients are not going to want to do counseling and that does not mean that they won't benefit from, from the medication and, and that we should sort of prevent them from getting Getting the men. I would just add that. Remind us who you are. This is Jeff, Jeff Sagnola, director of the WAMI program. Um, is that uh, most of Idaho, all of Idaho, has actually helped provider shortage areas for behavioral and mental health. And so, in a rural setting, you may not have those resources available. You may have MAT waiver trained individuals that may not have even a psychiatrist or counselors that are even available for, for the patients. Just to reiterate what WAMI Director Jeff Sigmiller just said, the entire state of Idaho has been designated a mental health professional shortage area by the Idaho Bureau of Rural Health and Primary Care. A link to more information about that definition can be found in the show notes. And sometimes, too, like Dr. Hamso is talking about, um, until they get to a therapeutic dosage on their MAT, the medication-assisted treatment, they're not even open to, willing to. But once they get there, sometimes they start having some insights. They're like, oh, wait, maybe I need a little extra help with that. So I, I totally agree. It's got to be patient-centered. Um, and But I do think if you are referring someone out because you think it's a good fit, you got to find a good substance abuse counselor that can work for with that. How do you side. do that in rural Idaho, Amy? Um, it's tricky. Got very it. tricky. Oh, great. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you're looking for a licensed facility that might have counselors that do that, um, the Department of Health and Welfare keeps a current list of all the licensed treatment, substance abuse treatment facilities. Um, and I believe it's also listed on there who does both mental health and substance abuse. Um, but it, it can be tricky to find uh good substance abuse. And unfortunately, one of the things we have going on in our state is um, we don't have a lot of education anymore in the counseling programs specifically for substance abuse. So that's something we're kind of addressing as well. We, just, we have a real shortage of that. So it can be very tricky. There's also telehealth. So the state has opened up telehealth for substance abuse treatment and counseling. So that's a possibility as well. And at risk of cutting us off abruptly, we are at time. So that's been a really rich conversation. Thank you to all who came and spoke up. That again was a didactic presentation by Amy Jepson titled Idaho Trends and Resources, the State of Use in Idaho. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on February 28th of 2019 as a part of ECHO Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the ECHO Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website.
PowerPoint slide deck that accompanied that presentation is also available on our website, www.uidaho.edu echo. The resource materials that Amy mentioned in that lecture are currently available on our podcast webpage. For those and instructions about how to claim continuing education credit for listening to this episode, visit our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live Echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. Here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today, but join us next time when we will be looking at some de-escalation techniques with St. Luke's Security Director, Abby Abandondolo, and talking a little bit with Skip Clapp, the Director of Valley County Court Services. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Till then, Idaho, take care of yourself. In answer to our prayers, echo Idaho. Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI-1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Amy Jepson, Corey Weathers, Radhasada Charan, and Todd Palmer, respectively. The definitions of medications for medication-assisted treatment were provided by Brenda Hoyt from an August 8, 2019 Echo Idaho lecture titled Methadone, Todd Palmer from a July 19, 2018 Echo Idaho lecture titled Buprenorphine in Primary Care, Monty Moore from an August 22, 2019 Echo Idaho lecture titled Non-Opioid Drugs for Treating Pain, and Kathy Oliphant from a September 13, 2018 Echo Idaho lecture titled Naloxone, Saving Lives. All of those lectures can be heard in their entirety on our YouTube channel, which can be accessed through the Echo Idaho website, www.uidaho.com. Echo. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Michelle Smith, Stephen Coates, Monty Moore, Neil Reagan, Jeff Sigmiller, and Magni Hamso. And a big thanks to all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, Carly Klein, and Sam Steffen. 